0: The investment podcast brought to you by m and g this podcast is for investment professionals only the value of investments will fluctuate which will cause prices to fall as well as rise and investors may not get back the original amount they invested past performance is not a guide to future performance the information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation advice or forecast hello and welcome to this installment of the Investment Podcast, brought to you by MNG Investments. Today's theme is real estate, a sector which, like every other, has indelibly been reshaped by the pandemic. In addition to dealing with known knowns, such as asset prices, and responding to the inflationary environment, real estate investors must now also navigate emerging dynamics. This includes offices that cater to cultures and geographies, as well as applying the highest of sustainability standards to buildings, which account for 40% of global carbon emissions. I'm your host, Rommel Patel, and I'm joined by MNG's Jose Pellicer, Head of Investment Strategy in the Real Estate Division. And Richard Vandenberg, manager of the Asian Property Core Strategy, welcome to you both.
1: Glad to be here.
2: Good to be here, Ramon.
0: Thank you, Richard. You sit in Asia as a European. How do you approach doing business in Japan and Korea?
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of myth about doing business in Asia being completely different, and I think it applies to any country where you do business, which is not your home business. And that is that you need to have local people on the ground. You need to have local people to do the negotiations, you need to have people to do the asset management, and you need to be sensitive for changes and differences in culture. Um, and that applies very much to Asia as it does to any other part of the world where you're outside of your, your home territory. If you look, for instance, at North Asia and, and you go from China uh, to Japan, uh, China, Korea, Japan, you see very different ways in which the culture Uh, integrates with businesses. In Japan, it is very much a bureaucratic process. It's a very streamlined and organized process. It's very much a team process where everyone needs to be on board and where discussions take place as long as is needed to, uh, to get a consensus. If you then hold it against China, it is almost completely the opposite. The process is very fast. There's a strong leadership whose opinion basically Uh, determines uh, what is going to happen. And Korea is a little bit in the middle of that.
1: I totally agree with Richard. I think that it is very important to have feet on the ground. This can be done, and this happens everywhere in the world, but either you have employees in the local country that help you, but you can also work with operating partners. Obviously, employees are better, but many managers also use operating partners. We effectively use a mixture of both, uh, depending on the transaction.
0: Indeed. And we've seen China take measures to safeguard its economy by ensuring that debt is at more appropriate levels. How does this apply to real estate and indeed the construction sector?
2: Yeah, look, real estate is, is important in China, about a third, depending on how you calculate it. But about a third of the GDP is in one way or the other linked into real estate, developments and investments and therefore debt levels in one third of the economy clearly play an important role in the way the uh, the central government looks at their um, exposures over the years specifically on um, the real estate side you see that companies have been not just been focused on on purely real estate but also taken on a lot of additional business sectors in particular finance uh, real estate companies have taken stakes in banks, have set up banks. Uh, real estate companies have uh, set up financial investment products. And therefore, uh, the line between uh, finance and real estate has been blurred and has often been able to escape government regulatory oversight. Debt levels there have increased substantially, in particular with regard to local banks and, and uh Uh, some of the very large real estate companies and with that have become a risk to the economy as a whole. Therefore, the Chinese government has has set up the the kind of famous three red lines in which they try to manage the exposure of these companies to debt and to financial products. And it's very much is a way of, I think, uh, ensuring that excesses and domino effects will not take place, than that it it is already
1: taking place at this moment. Yeah, as a Spaniard, actually, I see many similarities between China today and Spain back in the mid to late 2000s. Construction was the key driver of the economy. Uh, Local banks were the key lenders of this big uh, construction expansion and local politicians were involved with local banks. Um, And as we know, it all ended up in uh, the global financial crisis and the euro crisis. But there is one key difference, which is that Spain had its hands tied. Spain was part of the euro. It couldn't devalue its currency and inflate its way away from debt. And the European Central Bank, it didn't start quantitative easing until much later. So I think that China has the tools to manage this crisis in a far smoother way than Spain had it at the time. China has insane amount of foreign currency reserves and it controls its currency. And it's not just, even though construction is 30% of the economy, the wider defined construction, China is also at the forefront of technology. It's a big exporter. So it's got many, many things to its advantage.
2: Yeah, and, and it doesn't mean there, there are no risks, right? A country and an economy the size of China and the speed in which the economy and the society has changed over the last thirty years is is clearly phenomenal and poses some some risks on on stress levels. Um, so that clearly is the case. But on the other hand, if you look at the economic growth, still four to five percent, uh, and and right, you might say, well, ten years ago it was ten percent. That's absolutely true. But since then. The economy has more than tripled in size and in dollar terms growth is still extremely large
1: exactly yeah no what i was going to say sorry to interrupt you is that that you know when you're growing at 10 percent, but your economy is three times smaller the amount of dollars is pretty much the same right now the amount of dollars that are added to the world economy are basically the same as they were when china was growing at 10 percent. so it's very 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 sizable
2: yeah And with that also, uh, China's middle class now is the largest in the world. It's a relatively wealthy middle class. Uh, The consumption patterns have been going up. Uh, The economy is a lot more diversified than it used to be, where it was in the old days very much focused on manufacturing and exports. Now there's a lot of technology, research, uh, consumption, as I, I just mentioned, added to it. Um, clearly, it still is very much export oriented, um, but uh, in that expert orientation, um, also the um, diversification has taken place where uh, it's not just only to the US and Europe, but also to uh, other parts of the world, to Africa, South America, and clearly Asia as well. So it's much more diverse. Um, it has strong currency reserves, uh, it also still has a reserve ratio of banks, which is relatively high and recently has been brought down a little bit to pump more money into the economy. So there are a lot of areas where the government has tools to ensure that this transition, which is taking place, is taking place uh, in, uh, in a balanced way.
0: Well let's turn to the issue of pricing, which is steep compared to historical levels. But we're living in a period where all pricing is steep. What should a core manager be doing under these circumstances?
2: Yeah, look, pricing is steep, but let's say it is high if you pure look at absolute numbers. So at at cost per square foot or square meter, and you look historically back. But if you take a different metrics and you compare pricing uh, and the premium uh, of, of yields above the, let's say, the benchmark, the uh, 10-year government bond rates, then in fact that premium is still historically on the upper edges. And that means that there is a buffer in case interest rates go up to still absorb those without having an immediate effect on, on real estate pricing. So yes, it is it is high, but not necessarily over expensive because the um, the premium uh, over uh, bond rates is still pretty strong so it's difficult to see how how in the, the short term there would be strong price corrections just based on uh, on the high historical pricing
1: yeah also from a strategic perspective in a period where pricing is rising um, it is important strategically that whenever if there are risks in terms of you know farther variants of the of the covid virus or potentially inflation is to focus on quality because it is quality assets that will be in demand from tenants and where you can create some tenant tension to achieve rental growth. So in other words, if you have an empty floor in an office building that is one of the best in the city and there are three tenants that want it, that's where you can start charging higher rents. So that strategy of upping the quality of a core portfolio, I think is particularly important in periods like today where Pricing is rising and there are some economic risks.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. We are in the, if you look at, at kind of uh, curves in the, um, let's say, the uh, the real estate markets, then we are at the upper end of the curve. And although I don't see an immediate kind of correction, the downside risk is uh, much higher than at this moment the upside potential with regards to increases in value and therefore you need to structure your portfolio you're able to absorb any kind of shock should that happen on that downside and and what you're saying is is the correct way you want to take risk out of the portfolio and how do you do that you upgrade the quality of the assets you have make sure that your tenants have a, uh, a higher kind of credits uh, lower risk tenants you bring your debt levels to, to a lower level and make sure that your covenants uh, have strong buffers in them. So, you, in a way, you make your portfolio more shock-proof at the higher end of the curve than when you would be at, uh, at the
0: bottom end. And uh, speaking of shocks, Richard, we've seen office requirements shift significantly as a result of the pandemic. And there are a number of factors at play, including culture, geography and sustainability. How will offices accommodate all of these competing requirements?
2: Yeah, I think first the jury is still out, right? There, there are a lot of different influences taking place in the office sector in, uh, in Asia. Uh, some of them are positive, some of them are negative. And um, how in the end it um, will result in, in demand is still a bit of a question. But overall, office use in Asia in particular... Is quite different from in, say, Europe, the States, or even uh, Australia. The, the kind of willingness, interest um, of people to go to the office, the need of people to go to the office is much more uh, than in other parts of the world. And it's a combination of very kind of physical, rational dynamics where people live smaller, sometimes with multi. Uh, multiple generations in uh, in their home husband and wife working where you just can't work from your home in an undisturbed manner as well as some cultural aspects where you want to be in the office you want to be seen to be working um, you want to be part of a team I just mentioned in Japan the kind of team spirit and the team decision-making very important Uh, you want to do that around the table and 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 look at each other so from that perspective, we don't see a uh, reduction in, in demand related to the usage. And in Asia, we still also have economies which are growing and growing fast, uh, or at least relatively fast. And that means with growing economies, clearly a direct relationship to increasing demand in uh, in office space. Australia is probably a little bit more in line with Europe and the States where working from home is much more accepted and much more already part of of the way they uh, people work. But there you're seeing that um, uh, a lot of companies, larger companies in particular, are focusing the use of office and their office location to be as central as possible, with amenities around it, in the middle of infrastructure nodes where people can, from all parts of the city, can get easy access to. So there we see an increase in demand for really high-quality, new, modern, ESG, well-designed office space, while the more fringe locations uh, are seeing a uh, reduction in, uh, in demand.
1: Yeah, and indeed, I think that um, Australia, um, it's not just culturally, but also geographically. So there is that point that as the population gets more spread, the commutes become more, let's call it challenging. And the more challenging a commute is, the more propensity there is to work from home. Everything else constant. And indeed, you know, um, Richard's totally right. It Depends on the size of the dwellings in Australia. They happen to be bigger. But um, having a good ESG credentials in your building in a good location where it is hard to build you've got yourself an important asset, an asset that should be fit for the next 30 years. And that, I think, is what, as a real estate investor, we really need to aspire to. A location that is a monopoly over a piece of land and that has the right ESG credentials of energy consumption, water consumption, greenhouse gas emissions, etc., and the tenants um, want to be in even in countries with more propensity to work from home, like Australia. A good building in the center of Sydney is a brilliant piece of real estate.
2: Yeah, and and in that, you're also seeing changes in the relationship between landlord and tenant, where um, now it is much more a concerted process where we look at... In fact, we see ourselves very much as a service provider to tenants. What are their needs? How are their needs changing? Um, How can we accommodate that? What kind of amenities do they need? What kind of ESG? What kind of facilities do they uh, and, and requirements do they have? And how can we fulfill that? And it's very much working with them as a service provider than purely as a space provider.
0: And before we go, let's consider residential property in the Asian market. Richard, what is it about the current state of the market that potentially makes it attractive for investors?
2: Yeah, look. I think residential prices, and this is this is globally, uh, I think, the case. Residential prices everywhere have have risen very, very high over the last um, five to ten years, and to an extent, in in many countries, and in particular in Asia, where pricing already was high, residential space for the younger uh, generations, the people who have left university, let's say, age group between twenty five to thirty five, forty price levels have risen to 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 a height where it has become very difficult for them to get an entry into the market and and that's where the the kind of traditional uh, objectives of owning an apartment or a house as soon as you could and climbing up that real estate ladder now has become virtually impossible and also together with a changing I would say almost cultural need to not own but lease. A whole new generation has come looking at renting and not at buying. And that is something which is slowly emerging throughout Asia Pacific, also in uh, in Australia and to a certain extent Hong Kong and maybe later in Korea. Now, for a long time, those rental sectors of the residential market have been dominated by a private ownership, and to a certain extent have been quite immature and primitive in the way leasing, uh, deposits would be structured. You can see now that more institutional investors and, and developers are moving into that sector, and where the so-called, in Australia, built-to-rent uh, developments are starting to, uh, to emerge, and built-to-rent for institutional investors for a long-term hold. We believe that that trend is going to continue and in fact will gain a lot of momentum. Australia is on the forefront of it. Uh, Japan already, it is mature. And we think not too long in the future, uh, Korea and Hong Kong may follow.
0: Well, that's all we have time for in today's episode of the Investment Podcast. Thanks indeed to Jose Pellicer and Richard Vandenberg for sharing their expertise and to you for tuning in. Please join us next time goodbye for now this podcast is for investment professionals only for further information please view the notes which accompany this episode